Welcome to the fourth reading of the book, The Holy Ground of Honey Creek, Reflections of a Small Town Pastor, written by Rev. I. Dean Jordan, who began his ministry in 1950 and retired for the first time in 1988 after serving almost 40 years as a United Methodist minister. Then after retiring, he spent another four years as a part-time minister for the United Church of Christ. And he writes in the preface, when I look back on my ministry, I realize that these last 50 years have been like no other in challenging our faith. And I thought someone should write a book about it, not a grand sweeping view of religion or history, but insights gained in serving local congregations as we all struggle to put our faith into practice. And this book, The Holy Ground of Honey Creek, is his attempt to provide insights that he gained serving the local congregations. This is the second sermon in the book, Jonah and a Whale of a Fish, May 4, 1952. A new introduction was added for the June 30, 1996 preaching of this sermon at the Olivet United Church of Christ in Columbus, Wisconsin. The purpose of the sermon is to show the beauty and insight available to us in the book of Jonah when we stop worrying about whether it's true. You would never expect to see a whale going north through Kansas, but I did, and it was a matter of keen interest to me. I was raised in a conservative United Brethren Church in Chanute, Kansas, in the southeastern part of that state. We were taught that everything in the Bible was true. We were not to question it, but rather to believe it and be saved. But we did question it and wondered how all those things, some very unusual, could be true. And of course, hard as it was to believe, we believed Jonah was for three days in the belly of a whale. But our belief was full of holes of doubt. Thus, when I saw that whale going north through Chanute, Kansas, I wanted to check this Jonah story out. Now, this whale was not swimming north. There was scarcely enough water in all of Kansas to support a pot of whales. This whale was dead and well-preserved to withstand that southern summer heat. It stretched out over two railroad flat cars, shaded by an awning, with a walkway on the car on either side of the whale. Sightseers started at the tail and walked their way to the mouth, which was propped open for all to see. After paying my viewing fee, I hurried to the whale's head. I wanted to see the mouth and throat. The mouth was big enough, but no way was that throat able to swallow a human being. It would have choked a large grapefruit. How about that Jonah story now? Jonah was one of the puzzles in the Bible that I pondered at length. My faith was not shaken, but I sure had a lot of questions I wanted answered. It was several years before the answers came, because there was World War II to fight, a university degree to receive, and some graduate studies that helped put it off. At last, I found myself in a Bible study class in a United Methodist seminary in, at Northwestern University. Let me tell you what I learned about Jonah there. The book of Jonah is one of the most underrated books of the Old Testament. In reality, while it is one of the Bible's finest stories, embodying some of the loftiest ideas contained in the Old Testament, for many Christians today, it is an unpalatable fish story that could never have happened. 
The book was written about 100 years after the Jews had returned from their captivity in Babylon. That's about 2,500 years ago, 450 B.C. When Babylon took the Jews captive, it looted the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the magnificent Temple of Solomon. After the return from this captivity, the Jews set about reestablishing themselves. They built homes, began farming again, and started to rebuild the temple. But things just didn't go well. The farms weren't producing, the land wasn't good, and the weather hadn't been good for growing. Since the country depended upon farming, there was a depression. And there was friction among the Jews, between those who stayed in Judah and those who had been taken captive and returned from Babylon. Each group distrusted the other, suspecting each other of bad intentions. Worst of all, the temple wasn't being rebuilt satisfactorily. Not being wealthy, they couldn't build another real fancy one, and some of the old-timers were complaining that it wasn't like the temple of their father's fathers. Their complaints and criticism took the heart out of the whole enterprise, as it does every time, even today. All these factors contributed to the growth of a severely exclusive nationalism among the Jews. This seems to be the way with people in general. If things begin to go wrong, they become embittered and begin to look for someone on whom to vent their bitterness. The Jews vented their bitterness on all the surrounding Gentile nations. Their God, thought the Jews, would have nothing to do with the Gentiles. He would vent his wrath upon them and get even for the Jews' misfortunes. This was the opinion of the common man and of many of the Jewish leaders. But there was another way of thinking in Jewish thought. It had never been predominant, but it had always been there. That was the belief that the God of the Jews was the God of the universe, of all nations. That the Jews, in some manner, were a chosen people, not for privilege, but for service, chosen to tell the world about this God. This opinion is most beautifully expressed in some of the poetry of Second Isaiah, written during the time of the Jews' deliverance from Babylon. The writer of the book of Jonah was among those few who remembered those songs of Isaiah and considered the Jewish God the God of all peoples. He wrote the story to bring this opinion into the consciousness of the exclusive nationalists among his fellow Jews. When we read Jonah, we must remember, first of all, that it is a fanciful story, a piece of fiction, like Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin or Herman Melville's Moby Dick. Jonah was spun out of the author's mind for the purpose of putting across an idea. Like the parables of Jesus, it is a fictional story told to clarify and emphasize an idea. If we understand this, then some of the miraculous things the author relates will not hide from us the truth of the story. To be sure, there was such a man by the name of Jonah, but he lived about 300 years before this story was written. He was a prophet in the employ of the king of Israel, and as such he was more of a political zealot than a spokesman of God. When the author of the book of Jonah wanted a central figure for his story who could symbolize the narrow, bigoted nationalism against which he was writing, he took the prophet Jonah. Because the great fish 
whale was not used in the story, which swallowed Jonah has become a stumbling block to, un- to understanding this story. Let me say a word about it. In the first place, stories of giant fishes or land animals from which heroes were delivered were common to the folklore of these people, so the author had no hesitation in using one in his story. It isn't a real animal, nor was it intended to be so considered. As John Patterson says in his book, the writer was not concerned with any exact definition of the marine monster. And if he had foreseen how dumb and wooden and devoid of humor men living in a machine age might become, he would doubtless have tugged the somatic whisters and laughed uproariously. For it is the tragedy of life that we must forever be turning poetry into prose and have lost entirely the habit of running back through the crystal doors of childhood to the never-never land of make-believe. This was from John Patterson's The Goodly Fellowship of the Prophets, page 277. Further, it is odd that we should make so much of this fish miracle and ignore the other miracles in the story. One, God setting a storm to destroy Jonah's escape ship. Two, the calming of the seas as soon as Jonah is tossed overboard. Three, God's having a bush grow, leaf, and die in a single day. And four, the biggest miracle of all, that the whole great city of Nineveh, thousands strong, should repent on hearing Jonah's message. This is enough background to prepare you for the story. Let me now share it with you. This is from the Revised Standard Version, copyright 1989, the Division of Christian Education of the National Council of the Churches of Christ in the United States of America. Verses 1 through 9 in chapter 2 have been omitted as they are a later insertion into the original story. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amitria, and saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried to his God. They threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold of the ship and laid down, and was fast asleep. The captain came and said to him, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up! Call on your God. Perhaps the God will spare us a thought so that we do not perish. The sailors said to one and another, Come. Let us cast lots, so that we may know on whose account this calamity has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. They said to him, Tell us why this calamity has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? I am a Hebrew, he replied. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were even more afraid, and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them so. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, 
Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great storm has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to bring the ship back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more stormy against them. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, O Lord, we prayed, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. Then the men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. But the Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it spewed Jonah out upon the dry land. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk, and he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring down upon them, and he did not do it. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He cried, he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord! Is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush, and made it come up over Jonah, to give shade over his head, to save him from his discomfort, so Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush, so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah, so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, Yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, Are you concerned about the bush, for which you did not labor, and which you did not grow? 
It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many animals? The writer of the story doesn't answer the question he has God as Jonah. But there can be no doubt in our mind that what the answer is. Yes, O Lord, thou should have mercy on Nineveh. So, with the thrust of a pointed story, the author drives home the idea that the God of the Jews, the God we worship, is a loving, merciful, forgiving God, who is Lord not just of our own Judeo-Christian community, but of the whole world. With equal poignancy, he makes clear that it is the task of the Jew, as we think it is the task of the Christian, to declare that there is one, one God, the Lord of all humankind who loves all the people of this earth. When you go home this morning, pick up your Bible and read for yourself this story of a man who tried to run away from God, but couldn't, who was used by God to change the thinking of a whole city. Perhaps there's a task God wants you to do for him, if you will but listen to his direction and obey. In the name of our Lord, Amen, Amen. Amen. This ends the fourth reading from the book The Holy Ground of Honey Creek Reflections of a Small Town Pastor written by Reverend I. Dean Jordan Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm John Jordan.